In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful, by the light of the Holy Spirit, granted by the gift of this same Spirit, we may be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, last night we considered the purpose of the recollection in the greater picture, and how Lent and Passion Tide is in fact a, a microcosm of our entire life. So we've got to see that as a prepar as a as a, an encouragement to live live a good life and hopefully have a happy death. We didn't get very far with the with the with the words of our Lord on the cross. We only got to the first. But as I said to you, it's a, such a fundamental word because it's the expression of what our Lord is essentially in himself and the purpose for which he has come. So we're even going to labor it just a little tonight before we move on to the others. The great thing about our Lord's forgiveness is its universality in every circumstance, to everybody, in every time, and every place, every circumstance. So, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. <clears throat> and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And they sat down and they watched him. And the people stood beholding. And then they passed by, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, They, thou that destroyest the temple of God, and in three days buildest it up again, save thine own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. In like manner, the chief priests, so you had the mob, and then you had the chief priests, the, uh, the upper crust of society, also condemning him, but condemning him in a slightly more refined manner. They didn't abuse him directly to his face. They did it indirectly, like polite people do. They said, he saved others. <laughs> in fact, we don't even deign to actually refer to him directly. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Ha! If he be the Christ, the King of Israel, if he be the Christ, the Son of God, let him now come down from the cross and we may see and believe. He trusted in God, let him now deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. That was a daring thing for them to say. Because they, don't forget that they had finally, without any doubt, resolved to put our Lord to death unjustly after he'd performed the greatest miracle that could ever be performed, which was the resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, really? And yet still, 
they're demanding what in fact would have been a lesser miracle for him to just step down off that cross. I mean, that's, I mean, to me, it's incomprehensible. If you can actually bring somebody back from the dead who's been you know, locked up, buried in a tomb for three days, already starting to corrupt, you can surely get yourself out of a little bit of minor trouble like being nailed to a cross. And yet they didn't. It's horrendous. It's really horrendous how bold and how daring and how, may I say, insane their, their ideas were. And so every, every, uh, every rebellion against God has got that element of madness, that element of insanity in it. And the, sword, the, the soldiers also mocked him. So you've got the rabble passing by, you've got the, 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 the high society people mocking him, you've got the soldiers mocking him, and offering him vinegar in mock a toast, here's a, to, here's a health unto his majesty, uh, the king of the Jews on the cross, Offer him their vinegar, which is their plonk, really. Offer him their vinegar and saying to him, Ha, if you be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Then they're all saying the same thing. They're all following the propaganda. <laughs> the propaganda that was put out by the quasi-governments, that's to say the, Jew, the, uh, the, the high priests. Just like people always do. What that they're still doing to this day. It's very, very relevant. And my goodness me, if all that wasn't enough, this is pretty horrendous. Well, it seemed to be the most horrendous of all. The self-same thing, the thieves that were crucified him, they also reproached him. My goodness me. You'd have thought there would have been some kind of solidarity amongst them. But of course, there's no honor amongst thieves, as, <laughs> as I said, really, truly. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and they reproached him and they reviled him. Think of that word. They reviled him. Why did they do that? It's really, truly mad. It's, 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 it's diabolical. Now, the point of all this is that they were not impressed by the fact that he forgave them. <laughs> they were not impressed by the fact that he forgave them. And yet, he still forgave them. This has got a tremendous lesson for us, because it's not true. We are, we are most of them, all good people, are, we're all quite disposed to forgive people, you know, if they apologize, for example. You know, if they apologize, well, yeah, okay, that's all right, because we know that they're, you know, they're sorry now, they've amended. <laughs> yeah. Our Lord wasn't like that. He forgave everybody. And not only that, we can also have other conditions about forgiving. For example, very noble conditions. We can say, well, I mean, I forgive him. I forgive him what he's done to me. But I mean, I'll never forgive him what he did to my mother. I'll never forgive him what he did to my child. What did he do to our, Lord, our lady who was standing there watching her innocent son being killed? Our Lord forgave them. And we've got to assume that since Our Lady was one in union with her divine son, that she forgave them for, or likewise, for what they did to her child. I mean, it's just so, it's so overwhelming, really, in its generosity, that you can almost begin to think it's all a bit overdone, this really, isn't it? It's all a bit, going a bit, a bit far, actually. And yet, that's what actually, that's what, that's what God calls us to do. That's what it's all about. That's what the, that's, that's what the lesson is. 
but we must be prepared to do it. Now, our question now is, if that's the case, if we are convinced that's the case, why? Why have we got to do it? Have we got to do it just because, well, that's what Jesus said you've got to do. I mean, obviously, it's not the kind of thing that you'd want to do, is it, really? But anyway, I mean, we're all good Christians, so we'll do what Jesus says. He says we've got to forgive. I hate that person, but anyway, I'll, I'll forgive them nevertheless. No, it's not meant to be like that at all. It's not meant to be anything whatsoever like that. Actually, if you actually think about this from a totally different angle, the best defense that anybody has is forgiveness of their enemies. We're always afraid if we give, forgive people that they've got the upper hand somehow, that they've, you know, they've won in this conflict. They've got the better of us. But it's not actually the case. If we forgive them, we actually extract from ourselves all the harm that they've done to us, all the poison that they put into us. What do we, we've got to forgive them because if we don't forgive them, we will be filled with resentment towards them. I think somebody said that resentment is frozen anger. You know, it's in you, like in the fridge. It's got a frozen, and of course, because of that, it, it chills yourself. It chills your own heart. It makes you actually paralyzed. They've actually got the better of you because you want to forgive them. That's a very, very, very important uh, thing, to, uh, thing to consider. Very important indeed, because if we don't have that, we can't have peace. We can't have peace with ourselves. We can't have peace, obviously, with anybody else. Because everything is embittered. And the funny thing about, the funny thing about these resentments, they oftentimes they're, they're not even necessarily about anything too big or too enormous. We find sometimes it more annoying and irritating and hard to forgive trivial things very often than sometimes quite big things, such as, the, again, the perversity of our nature. It's, it's, very, it's very strange. But if we do it, we're doing ourselves the greatest favor. I think, and, and if we've got, we don't have that peace, we cannot have peace with God. And therefore, we cannot progress in union with God. We've already not got the mind of God. We've not got the mind of Jesus. But we can't actually progress very far, at least in union with him otherwise. Now, if all that seems terribly hard, <laughs> and it's, I would say it's not only hard, it's impossible, because we can only do it through the grace of God. It's only possible because give, God gives us the grace to do it. And if you think it's all a bit unfair, and you would be quite right to think so, if you think about it a little bit farther, and this is where we come to, to the next point, if you're going to think further, forgiving people does not mean that they should not be punished for what they've done. Now, this is another very important distinction. Forgiving people doesn't mean to say, oh, they, all, they, they got off with it. That's fine. Good. No punishment, no consequence, no nothing. Now, clearly, as you know, and maybe that's what makes you feel uncomfortable about the whole notion of this forgiveness, it doesn't seem to be in harmony and conformity with God's justice. But at the same time, although Jesus is infinitely merciful, he's also infinitely just. And so how do we kind of square that one up? That's another thing which is difficult to square. Because our Lord forgives everybody for everything, but at the same time, 
he warns that there will be a consequence. I mean, he foretold, he, he foretold, the, um, he cursed even the lake cities in which he had done most of his miracles. And he cursed them because they did not believe and they did not accept the miracles that he had performed in them. He said that, the, he said that, 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 that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that the people would be punished. How does it all add up? Well, I think it adds up quite simply that we are always forgiven unless we refuse the forgiveness. I think it's really that. No one and nothing is beyond the generosity and the forgiveness of Almighty God unless they choose to extract themselves from it, unless they refuse to accept it, unless they refuse to accept God's grace. Grace is a gift. But if you I mean, if the, if, the, if, if the person won't accept the gift, well, I mean, they've not got the gift. It's, it's, it's impossible. And so we've got to try to realize that, that the love which we have got to have is not really, essentially, a, a question of the, emo, the, the emotions. We get the idea that if we've forgiven somebody, we've got to feel good about them then. No, that's not the case either. Some people actually think that they've not forgiven an injury because they can't help feeling bad about the injury. But that's not correct. You can actually forgive a thing and be, feel very bad about it at the same time. Why? Because it's our will that forgives. It's not our emotions. Essentially, our love is a choice in the direction of our will, not of our emotions. Like I was saying yesterday, when the young couple who are all madly in love with each other, sentimentally, when they come up the aisle, it's bang. They declare their love, not in any emotional terms at all, they declare their will to fix their wills together. God doesn't expect us to be particularly emotional about him. This is another thing. We get the idea that, oh, we must be far from God because we don't feel all sentimental. I don't know, this, 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 this passion tide may come and go, and you won't feel remotely sorry for our Lord on the cross at all. You won't feel like shedding a tear for him. You'll read all about it. You'll feel nothing. doesn't mean to say that you don't love him. It's the attachment the attack of our will, and he tells us this. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who keeps my commandments, he is that loveth me. Love is to conform one's mind with the mind of the one who loves. Everybody who's even thought about it knows that. It's not a specifically Christian thing. I think that Cicero, the great Roman orator, he wrote a beautiful treatise on friendship. And he defined friendship as being people who have... Idem voli, idem noli. People who want the same thing and don't want the same thing. Who've got one mind and one heart. They're on the same wavelength. You know, like our friends. With our friends, we don't have to, and the Lord, the people that we love, we don't have to explain everything that we think and we feel. They know. They know what we think and feel. And why do they know that they think and feel? Because they think basically... The same thing as us. That's why they're our friends, because we're in union with them. And so our union with Almighty God is like that. So also we've not got to get confused by the fact that we, when, when we're told to love our enemies, it's not saying, oh, love them like your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your child. It doesn't mean that emotional 
a, a emotional a, a link, which is lovely, beautiful, and precious, and which, of course, varies from even, our, even the direction of our emotion varies from the object of our emotions, if it's even to be right and coordinated. I mean, we don't love our mother in the same way that we love our husband. And we don't love our children in the same way that we, that, that we love our husband or we love our mother. And we don't love our friends in the same way that we love these members either. But, but we still nevertheless love them all perfectly in their, in their correct sphere. And so it is, it is here. Which brings us on to the next question now. And this, this, this is where you, you'd think this was obvious, but it's not obvious. I mean, again, what was I saying yesterday about, about, about the rulers of the church now? I mean, for example, it's now official in the catechism, contrary to the, now in the Roman catechism, contrary to the Holy Scriptures, contrary to the Word of God, it says that it, it says that it is immoral to execute criminals. That's contrary what to God, that's contrary what, to, to what it says in the Scriptures. God said to Noah, if, 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 if any man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because man is made in the image and the likeness of God. But quite apart from that, quite apart from, from what, never mind what God says, quite apart from what God says, it doesn't make sense. The greatest act of love, this is really, this is contrary to everything, this is contrary to, to what I'm going to say now is shocking, contrary to the catechism, contrary to the, the modern ideas, contrary to the Volk agenda, contrary to everything, the greatest act of love that you can do is to execute extreme criminals for their extreme crimes. Why? Not because it's an act of justice, certainly not because it's an act of vengeance, but because it gives them the opportunity to make amends for their crimes and to put their own souls in order. Without that, it's impossible. Now, look at this. This is I'm, I'm not bringing this up just as a, as a, a theoretical thing. This is the next thing. So, the robbers and the thieves who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, if thou be Christ, save themselves. Notice that both, both these thieves, the good, what we call now the good thief and the bad thief, they both rebuked him. And, and, and they blasphemed him, saying, if you be the Christ, save yourself and us. But they were crucified at the third hour, and so they hung on the cross for a while. And after the initial sort of turmoil and hatred and upset had calmed down, one of them suddenly had a revelation and could see that actually that this loving forgiveness of God was supernatural, that the whole way that our Lord was behaving on the cross was, and it must have been an amazing thing for him to even notice it because he must have been writhing in agony himself, so that there was something just peculiar, unusually good about our Lord. This is at the very lowest level, where there was clearly something very bitter and evil, although he was a bad person himself, about all these other people mocking and jeering him. And so he realized that this man was suffering innocently. And because he realized that good, he realized that he was suffering 
justly. Now that's the point. He realized he was duffling justly. And so he says, and so he actually rebukes the other thief, the other thief, the other thief who's reviling him and abusing him and so on. He says to him, neither dost thou fear God, seeing that we are under the same condemnation. We indeed justly, listen to that, we indeed justly, because we receive the due reward for our deeds. That's why this man's saved. He's genuinely contrite and he proves his contrition by accepting his punishment. That's the greatest, that's the glory of it all. But this man has done no evil. Isn't that absolutely beautiful? It's absolutely sublime. The best thing that happened to that man was to be executed. Imagine, he, he might not have been executed. Probably that very day, earlier on, if you remember, if you remember, the, if you remember this, the story of the Passion, that the Romans in their, um, in their imperial wisdom always you know, tried to let their, their subjects feel that they were kind of ruling themselves at the same time. That's what all great mighty powers do. That's how you have a successful empire. And so the, the, one, one of the things they did, every year when the Passover came, they made a sop to the Jews that in, in commemoration of their being released from their bondage in Egypt, they allowed one a major criminal to be released from prison. That's a celebration of that. And don't be deceived by, that, by this designation of robbers. I mean, crucifixion was such an atrocious crime. I mean, I know that in these days they had draconian crimes, but to be crucified, you really had to have done something pretty drastic. Don't get the idea that he was something like a house thief or a house burglar or something like that. He wasn't. He must have been a very evil, violent, uh, probably, probably revolutionary uh, as well. He might have been a murderer. Probably was. They're not giving any details about it, but he probably was. And on that day, so you can assume that he might have been, had a certain notoriety, that people would have known about him. And so on that day, when Pilate said to the people, you know, which one do they want? All these criminals down in the cells, they must have been hoping, I hope it's me. I hope I'm the one that gets off. Please, please let me off. Please let me off. He could have been, it could have been him and not Barabbas. And not Barabbas. But hard luck. No, it was Barabbas. Was that, was that really an advantage to Barabbas to have been released from prison instead of being punished? I think the assumption is that he probably went out there, woo, went back to his mates and went on living his safe, evil life and God knows what happened to him in the end. So the greatest grace which happened was this. And this is what I mean, this is what we were saying yesterday, that, that, that the unfolding of God's providence works in strange ways. That things which seem to be, you know, catastrophic or bad, turn out for the good and, and certainly, and certainly turned out, turned out good for him. It's lovely, really. It's beautiful. And isn't it so strange? And he'd lived a, such an evil life. And we, 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 and we, we must assume that, that he must have seen more in our Lord than just somebody who forgives people. He must have seen some good in him. And we, and we can only assume that our Lord must have Seen, uh, seen a good in him, which was a response to his, his good. 
You know, the good, this, this good thief, our Lord said, look what, our, the next word is what our Lord says to them. I mean, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. That man is the only man in history, this terrible criminal, is the only man in history who was canonized before he died. That's startling, isn't it? Canonized before he died. Nobody else was. <laughs> now, understand, of course, when it says this day I'll be with him, don't imagine that the, the good thief was... Was up, um, was up in the heavenly choir singing with the angels that day. That was impossible because our Lord himself hadn't gone into heaven. It means that his heaven was assured that he would go with our Lord to the limbo of the just in preparation for his ascension into heaven with our Lord at the end of time. But his, 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 his uh, salvation was, was assured. We can only assume that our Lord must have turned and looked at him. And and looked at him with love. Isn't it bizarre how things are in life? Do you remember there's another story about a young man? He was a rich young man, and he was a good young man, and he was a very religious young man. And he, you know, he did everything that he did to do right, and he wanted to do more. And he came to our Lord one day, and he said, you know, I really want to do right, I want to you know, do the right thing, and so on. And he did, tell me what I should do to gain eternal life. And our Lord said, no. Just, you know, keep the commandments and all that kind of thing. You know, just, oh, that's what you've got to do. And he went, oh, I do all that already. <laughs> so maybe, can there's anything more I could do? Is there anything more I could do? And the Lord said, yeah, give up everything and come and follow me. And he went, oh, my goodness me, because he had so many things to give up. But we are told that our Lord, when he said that to him, our Lord looked upon him and loved him. You're not often told that. I looked upon him and loved him. Now, our Lord can't love people who are not good. He must have been very, very good. And yet, he failed. After a life of virtue. Oh, I failed. I'm not saying he went to hell or anything like that. But he, he didn't rise to his vocation. Whereas this man who'd led an evil life, goodness knows with these terrible criminals, you don't know to what degree it's their fault and how much it's because of all sorts of terrible misfortunes and disadvantages that they've had in their life because, I mean, that's also a reality too. That, uh, yeah, that, our, that our Lord could have, would have taken all, 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 all of that, all of these things and all of these, all of these evils in, into, into account. And so at the very last gasp, he converted. And that's why it's wrong, to, it's not wrong to see in this, as some people do, as a kind of a consolation that, you know, no matter how bad you've been, at the end, you, know, you might be saved. So you don't have to really convert in the meantime. Or you've got an excuse for not converting just yet. Now, I don't think that's right either. Because it's very possible that this is the first time, really the first time, the first grace that this man, uh, this conscious grace, that this man ever received. And he acted on it right away. That's why we've got to be careful not to delay the, uh, the, the, the graces and the, and, and, and the gifts the gifts which, which, which Almighty God gave to him. So he, it would be false, really, to say that he delayed his repentance. So we've got to see that that happens to us. You know, they, they, these three people, uh, these three, th three people on Calvary there, our Lord, the good thief and the bad thief, these three crosses, they, they represent three categories of people. Well, they represent those who are absolutely innocent. Well, that's nobody. <laughs> So that's our Lord, so you, you eliminate him. And there's only other two. There are those who die, repentant and converted, 
to accept God's mercy and those who don't. It's really as simple as that. That's a that's choice that we've got. And you see that how, how that man almost, I see how he literally almost escaped hell. I mean, the, 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 all these people abusing, uh, abusing our Lord, abusing each other. I mean, the criminals abusing it. It's a perfect image of hell. And hell, that's all there is. There's only hatred. There's no love. Everybody hates each other. Even the condemned together in hell, they hate each other. So some people have got the idea, you know, if you go to hell, all the interesting people that be down there, you know, they'll all be having a great whale of a time, having a party and up in heaven, well, they'll just be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp or something like that. It's not going to be like that at all. Everybody in, in, in hell hates each other. So this man is, is, is forgiven in the limbo of the just before, before he sees the glory of heaven. So you see, in, in heaven is a place where everything is forgiven. Everybody's forgiven. Everything's forgiven and forgotten. In purgatory, everything's forgiven but not forgotten. <laughs> so, so we've still got to make amends for it. And of course, in hell, nothing is forgiven and nothing is forgotten. It's hell. Absolute hell. Now, let's move on. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll never end. You know, I go again. Sorry about this. So, now, they're stood by the cross. Now, this is very appropriate for today, the Feast of uh, Our Lady's Compassion, of the Our Lady of Sorrows. Now, they stood by the cross of his mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. Actually, sorry, can I just go back to that? Because there's another important point. Letitia, when it says that forgiveness does not exclude punishment, that's on the part of God. On our part, we must always forgive and leave the punishment to God. It's not appropriate for us to punish particularly injuries which have been inflicted upon ourselves. You have to be careful about that. That's very important. Remember that our Lord said, our Lord can be, seem to say contradictory things sometimes. For example, he says, judge not that you be not judged. So that's what the forgiveness is all about. And people, you know, trapes that out all the time. If you say anything's wrong, this is wrong, I don't know, gay marriage is wrong, or uh, abortion's wrong, they, oh, judge not and you be not judged. And then, if you don't know anything about the scripture, you've got to go, oh, that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus said. You go, mm, yeah, you do. That shuts you up, doesn't it? Very convenient indeed. But of course, he also said, judge. He actually commanded you to judge. He said, judge, not according to the appearance, but judge, right judgment. How does that add up? Judge, not, but judge rightly, not falsely. I think it means that there, there are certain competencies that we have and that we don't have. We've got to judge what was with, which is within our gambit, which was in our, the, the limits of our judgment. And one of the things that we cannot judge is the depths of the soul. We can certainly judge people's actions. We can certainly judge whether what they've done is good or bad, true or, or what they say is true or false, and we're obliged to say so. And we're meant to be discerning in that judgment and give that judgment. This is not, this is not carte blanche for all the evil in the world. But when it comes to things which are beyond our competence, 
which is, of course, the state of the soul. If we were able to judge people's souls, we'd be God. <laughs> we're arrogating to God. So that's why we've got to, so we've got to let everybody else's, everybody else's judgment be the subject of God's justice, whereas we are obliged in all circumstances to seek forgiveness. So they stood at the cross his mother, the Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own. Now here we see a wonderful example of what true love consists in. Because it doesn't, as we have said, just to repeat what I was just saying earlier, it does not consist essentially in an attachment of the emotions. It's in the attachment of the will, of having the same mind and the same heart. It's an extraordinary thing, really, that Our Lady should have been there at the foot of the cross. It's a pretty horrible thing. I mean, you wouldn't consider it appropriate or... I mean, you'd consider it horrific for a mother to have to witness, or even want to witness, her son dying in extreme agony, in extreme torture. And in fact, to make a mother watch that, you would consider to be a cruelty. And not only that, <laughs> for, for a son in bitter torment and agony to see his mother watching him at such a thing, that would add, that would add to the severity. That would add to the pain and the agony of it all. In fact, sometimes in ancient times, we, 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 tend, we, tend to, we, we tend to judge the past as if it were the present. I mean, you wouldn't have that kind of thing happening. Bad as things are now, uh, you wouldn't have that happening normally now. Uh, you, if, when criminals are executed, it's usually done. Because they're not executed now. But when they used to be executed in the prison, I mean, it was a private event. People weren't allowed to go to it. <laughs> Not even close relatives were allowed to go to it and see it. I mean, in fact, he wants to see it. It's pretty awful. But Our Lady did, and why? Because she had one mind and one heart with Christ, with her son, and so she wanted everything that she wanted, no matter what it cost her. There couldn't have been any feel-good factor in it. <laughs> in fact, absolutely the contrary. Now, the bizarre thing about all of this to our mind is that this is a culmination of a state of, what may I say, detachment or separation from the two people on earth who loved each other most. That's, you know, when the people that we love, we want to be with them all the time. That's what we like. We want to speak to them all the time. We like their company. Maybe invite them around here for dinner, a conversation, and all that kind of thing. Drinks together, all that kind of thing. People that we don't like, we never invite them, <laughs> ever. <laughs> In fact, we don't even speak to them. We say, oh, I don't speak to her. I don't speak to him. We don't have anything to do with them. But it's, it's a, the strange thing, the, the strange detachment between Our Lady and Our Lord, I would say, certainly, through the whole of Our Lord's public life, now, at the very beginning, in the in the in the in the, in the, in the infancy, well, when our, when our Lord became 
an adult, because people became adults at the age of 12 years, then he disappeared. That's one of the most cruel things that you can imagine. He disappeared. Now, of course, he'd reached his majority. He'd like more than two. He reached his majority. He couldn't have to do what his parents said any longer. And so, and so he went off to, without telling them. And they went through this excruciating agony when he could easily have prevented it. He could have said, okay, mum, actually, you go ahead. I'll catch up later. I just want to speak to the doctors in the temple. She would have said, I presume, well, okay, son, go ahead. He didn't. It's a curious thing. It's, it's inexplicable. It's only explicable in the sense that she had to learn, because she did learn wisdom and grace, although she was born full of grace. She had to learn a detachment, an emotional human detachment from her son. And what did he say to her? Didn't you not know I must, I must be about my father's business? That was a cruelty. It's a cruelty, uh, you, I mean, it wasn't cruel. It was cruel to the emotions. But it was actually a loving thing for her because it united her more closely to him. And he, rec- and, 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 and he recompensed that by, by going home with them and staying with her for almost another 20 years in presumably unalloyed bliss in their little house in Nazareth. It must have been a terrible thing for her when that came to an end. And he went off on his public ministry. And the funny thing is, when he went on his public ministry, although you hear that there were various holy women who followed him and the apostles and looked after them, you're never told that she did. They're told Mary Magdalene, even, even embarrassing people like Mary Magdalene. Imagine having that in your, uh, that in your company after one reputation, but, but not, not his mother. Well, maybe she did, but the point is that we are not told that. She seemed to be at home while all this was going on. We were only told once, really, that, that, that when his family, our Lord's family, thought he's going crazy, we've got to, we've got to, we've got, we've got to, we've got to save him from himself. He's mad. He, uh, when he, uh, when he actually performed the miracle and he was accused of, of being an agent of the devil, by important people, that was a dangerous situation, not only for him, but for the family. You know, if a member of your family does something bad, uh, you're in trouble, not only just, I mean, you get tarred with the same brush. So they went round, they went around to to get him, to rescue him. (laughs) So they thought. (laughs) And when they tried, they couldn't get in because of the crowd. And the the people said, oh, you by the way, your mum and your your, your family are out there looking for you. That's the only time that we know. And he said, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? They who do the will of my father in heaven. He is my brother and my sister and my mother. And when, and, and when, and, and when that woman said, whoa, blessed the woman that bore you and the paps that gave you sack, what did he answer? He said, no, more blessed, or rather more blessed, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so Our Lady's union with God was based not, again, on sentiment and human considerations as union of soul. That was her glory. That was her glory, more than anything else. And that is our glory. And that's what's demonstrated here, that she took upon herself that union of crucifixion with her son. Not a physical crucifixion. But you could say, I mean, we'd rather, and especially if you're a parent, uh, you'd rather suffer yourself uh, than your child. 
even when they grow up. Because for parents, I think, I'm not a parent myself, but I think for most people, you never grow up. But for parents always think of their children as children, even when they're... It's more terrible and agonizing to actually look and watch somebody that you love suffering. It's, it's, you'd rather that you could do it yourself. And so that's what, that's what she suffered. She was unable to help him. He was unable to help her. He couldn't have come down from the cross and embraced her and said, oh, come on, Mom, it's okay. I'm doing God. No, he was nailed to the cross. Why was he nailed to the cross? He was nailed to the cross because it was his duty to be nailed to the cross. And sometimes in our lives, we've got to be, we are so nailed to duty that we've got to surrender, painful as it is, all sorts of ties in life. So it's again, it's, this is, this is, a, this is a marvelous, this is a marvelous, a, um, a marvelous demonstration of how we have gradually, you see how we, this, it's all a preparation for our death at the same time. Our Lord's setting his house in order. He's dying now. He's got nothing. The only thing he's got left is his mother. So he organizes his affairs. He gives her away. He gives her, he puts her into the safekeeping of St. John. That's a nice, that's lovely, isn't it? But it's not much of a consolation. It's not her actual son. <laughs> and I mean, who could ever be anything like our Lord? I mean, even if somebody offered you another a substitute for your child who's actually, from every point of view, better than your own child, <laughs> it's still not going to work, is it? Really? <laughs> and so she got, she got this, she got this, uh, this, this, this um, admirable and wonderful as St. John was. I mean, he was. Uh, how was how was St. John even 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 able to even to be there? St. So, 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 John, St. John that we're told, and St. John says himself that standing there was Our Lady and the disciple that Jesus loved. Now he's speaking about himself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. No. That's a bit, don't you think? It sounds a little bit, um, well, I don't know, uh, pushing yourself forward a little bit, even if it's true. In fact, even if it is true, it's kind of worse than if it weren't true. Again, how, how has that got to be understood? I think that we've got to see that, yeah, like so many of the things, it can, be taken, it can be taken in a good way or a bad way. That's why we should be careful of the judgments that we make. Because if you take it in a good way, it's a good way. It means that... Our Lord, I think we can put an interpretation, that our Lord loved St. John so much that he gave him a singular privilege uh, to have the courage to actually go and be there when it wasn't granted to other people. Remember St. Peter and St. John, the two of them. I mean, St. John ran away like everybody else in the Garden of Gethsemane. We always think about St. John never did anything wrong, but he did. And he, and he also asked for one of the best places in the kingdom. He wasn't Mr. Perfect, <laughs> he, which is also a consolation, really. But he came back again. He and St. Peter came back. They tried to follow our Lord. They came, into the, they came into the palace of the high priest. And, of course, St. Peter, as usual, loud-mouthed and uh, sure of himself, well, he got himself in big trouble. But St. John didn't. St. John wasn't so sort of, uh, <laughs> what shall I say, bombastic. And so he was much more discreet, and so he, he was overlooked. And so God gave, he was given this special grace, and that's a special grace that's got to be 
got to be given to us. Now, what we're also told in another place here is that... Uh, I'm going to have to stop, sorry. I'm going to wind up now. I don't know how we get through all the next ones tomorrow, but never mind. We're also told in another, in another place further on, and this is something that you don't often think about either, which is a bit sad, but overlooked, very often overlooked. You see, you look at the lovely side of this picture. It's lovely. But like all lovely things, it's, it's the beauty of suffering. It's the beauty of separation. Our Lord is going to die and be separated from Our Lady. Our Lady has got separate, got St. John. What about St. John's mother? Not very complimentary to her, is it? <laughs> and we are actually told that the mother of the sons of Zebedee was standing there afar off and Our Lord was giving her son to Our Lady. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Isn't it? What does it all mean? What's the meaning of it all? It means that, we, that, that, that again, it's another underlying, I think, that the that human ties, precious and beautiful as they are, I mean, God's made us human, he's made us flesh and blood, but that everything ultimately is all going to pass away to the greater union, which is union with him and with each other in him. We all become united to him. Because it's very significant that when our, when our Lord's on the cross, he doesn't say, Mother, behold thy son. He says, A woman, behold thy son. And that's very solemn. Because remember, there's another occasion when our lady said to him, They've got no wine at this festival. Can't you do something about it? You don't think he said, Okay, Mom, we'll do it later. Or, No, I'm not going to do it. He, uh, or uh, I'll think about it. No, he didn't. He said, woman, woman, <laughs> woman, yeah, my hour has not yet come. Our, our lady had asked him to begin, really, his, his, his public work of redemption. And because of that, he refers to her, not, again, not just as a personal union, but her role. So if he's got to be, if, if she's asking him to be the Messiah, not her son, but the great saviour, then she's got to fulfill her role. He's going to be the new Adam. She's got to be the new Eve. And so she's given, she's given her official title. Woman. What, who was the first woman? The first woman is Eve. Eve who was brought from the side of Adam. And she was called woman because she was taken from man and she became the mother of all of the living. And our lady is the woman taken from spiritually from her own son, taken, if you like, from her own son, dying on the cross, dying on the marriage bed of the cross. It's another beautiful mystical thing that, he, uh, that, that, he, uh, that she becomes the new woman, the new Eve, the new mother of all of the living. And so she becomes the mother of all of us. And so these human ties, lovely and precious as they are, are secondary to that union which joins all of us. Which is why, of course, we, that we think about the church, is that, that our Lord dying on the cross, falls asleep in the marriage, on the, I think it's St. Augustine's, in a swoon, on the, in, the, in the marriage bed of the cross, and out of him is born the church. A living body, his body, 
so that we are all united in him once in spirit. And of course, that mystical body shall continue to the end and into, into the glory of eternity. So all of, all, of these, all of these small things, look apparently small things, have got immense significance for, for, our, for, for the this history of the world, for the, for, a, uh, for, for the history of salvation, but for the, our history, our history likewise. So from that day, the disciple took her to his own, as we must take her to our own, because she is, as he says, really and truly a mother in an even greater sense than a natural mother is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.